Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. His difficult childhood led him to a passion for helping children. Now, Dr. Malik Muhammad is working to change lives in Baltimore City. This episode of the Free to Be More podcast, we talked to Dr. Mohammed about the impact he's making in our city and his hopes for the future of Baltimore. Dr. Malik Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, Megan. Thank you. Talk to me a little bit about what ACOBEN is for people who are not familiar with your organization. Sure. So uh, ACOBEN is, I think the, the easiest way to describe it is a professional development organization. So we center our work around training and consultation and coaching. And most of the space that we're working in is in schools with school districts. And we do some work with community-based organizations and we're expanding that work in with government agencies as well as, as uh, we're pulled into the work with uh, Baltimore Healing Cities Act. Talk to me a little bit about what you are specifically doing in Baltimore, because this is such a huge movement, so many people involved. What piece of the puzzle is your organization fitting into? Yeah, absolutely. So we center our work around four pillars, and those are restorative practices, trauma-informed practices, cultural relevancy and equity, and then what we refer to as agency and assets, which is really strengths-based work. And so for a number of years, we've been partnering with Baltimore City Schools to provide training, coaching, and consultation for the schools. So out of 175 schools, we've been working now for the past year with about 50 of them. So about 25% of all schools in Baltimore City we touch. um, And that work will expand this year, coming up into the new school year. And what we're doing there is really helping teachers, uh, administrators, staff to build stronger relationships using the vehicle of restorative practices. But for us, when we're talking about one of those pillars, we're, we're talking about and referencing all of them. So while we're weaving into our restorative practices work, trauma-informed practices, equity, and strength space. And then from there, that work has continued to uh, begin to touch community organizations uh, where we're developing some work. And then now some of our, our, our work with Baltimore City agencies. So for the Healing Cities Act, we're actually offering the restorative practices training element. So along with our colleagues from other organizations who are supporting with other elements of what we refer to as healing practices and trauma-informed practices. When you go into a school and you're providing these trainings, I I guess they're just like for teachers and other educators, how do you even start kind of explaining to them what restorative practices are and why this training could have a major impact on the way that they interface with students and make a difference in their students' lives? Yeah, so so it's, it's interesting because what we're often talking about are the very things that the best among us and when we are at our best that we do, right? So they're anchored inside of the experiences that we all have with some of those dynamic adults that we had in our lives when we were young, right? Whether they were teachers or administrators or community folks or youth pastors or volunteers, mentors, right? Folks that were really dynamic in the lives of young people, all of us really were living restorative practices by another name, 
right? And so what we're doing is we're codifying, we're giving terms and language to some of the best practices that we saw and experienced, like building connection before we go offer challenge, right? Really seeing and valuing and giving voice and amplifying voice to young people, seeing them as human beings worthy of being honored and valued, um, the harmony between connection and challenge. So what we're doing is, is a reminder, if you will, a reminding of some of these best practices that we see when we're at our best with parenting, when we're leading um, all of that at our best. And so there's a central quote that I like to offer, and it holds, it usually holds true for folks and they recognize it as true. And that is that human beings, all of us, human beings, we change our behavior based on our bonds and relationships. So if that is true, and most of us recognize that it is, then that means that that's our theory of change. So if human beings change their behavior based on their bonds and relationships, a layman's definition of restorative practices would be that how do we leverage, how do we lean into relationships in order to help transform behavior? And in a nutshell, that's what we're doing. We're helping to teach people how to do just that. How do we leverage and lean into relationships to help transform behavior for those that we're serving and ourselves? In Baltimore City specifically, have you seen different kinds of challenges that students are facing that you haven't seen in other cities that your organization has done work in? Yeah, so we have we have the the privilege of being able to work with a variety of of different environments. So we our largest projects are in in Baltimore City, and most of our staff are in Baltimore City. We also work in places like New Orleans, um, in Southern California, where where I am right now for this week, and then in places like Delaware and New York and and uh, Cecil County, Maryland, as well. So. We we have that opportunity of sort of having a diverse look, and and certainly there are some challenges that Baltimore faces, right? So it's the confluence of of poverty, historical racism, and oppression, uh, significant devastation due to drug use, um, but also you know a school system that has been trying to find itself and organize itself around good practices for some time. And I think it's making some headway. I'm, I'm proud of some of the, the successes that it's been having, but it's still got a long way to go. And uh, it's trying to call some good people into the work as well. So all of that plays out in the school life of young people and in the life outside of school for young people. And so what I particularly find to be really challenging is that Good folks who are doing really good work in Baltimore and other cities as well have a disconnection among our efforts. So we've got to have more alignment. We've got to have more unity of thought and action. And it's playing out with a gap in services for young people all too often. Where do you think that gap can be filled? Like what other organizations? And do you think like looking at this overall Healing Cities Act is it a holistic way to kind of look at those gaps and figure out how they can be filled? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's doing just that. I think what we're seeing with the Healing Cities Act is an overarching alignment and push for uh, synergy among agencies in Baltimore city government. So even the way that it was rolled out with 
let's pull together the heads of all the agencies, including the mayor, and train them up and give them exposure to some of these healing practices, and then plan a process so that we can initiate champions inside of each of the agencies, and then begin to systematically work through the agencies and offering the same type of training um, with some customization for each of the agencies. To me, that is unlikened to anything that I've seen in in really any other city. Um, so that's why I'm really excited, and that the the faculty of the training is rooted inside of the community. So these are folks that look and have experienced similar conditions to those that we're going to be training. And so what we've done is we've looked for indigenous expertise. I think that that is phenomenal. I think that's going to go a long way towards this work really growing legs and getting traction. I think it's interesting you talk about that because I really think when we're talking about trauma-informed care, we are training people that also live and grew up in Baltimore City that maybe experienced mm-hmm. some of that trauma. Have you seen kind of light bulb moments in this training where people realize that, you know, the people that they're trying to help have also experienced the same things that they've experienced during their lives? Yeah, absolutely. And and there is the sort of the the dialectic of um, that I am at one point and at the same time, um, both the hero and I can sometimes be the villain or saboteur of my own journey, right? That as I am attempting to engage in my own healing and the healing of others, that what can also stand in the way is um, is my worldview and my my own uh, sometimes negative coping mechanisms and practices. And so what this is doing, I think, and we are seeing uh, those light bulb moments in aha, is that as I engage in the process of helping to heal others, I am reinforcing those practices myself, right? So my wife is, is uh, Dr. Christina Watlington. She is a clinical psychologist. And what she often says is, um, you know, you've got to feel it to heal it. Right. That you got to You want to grow through what you go through. And it's really, you know, this attempt at avoidance, um, which sustains trauma and it sustains the anxiety that we feel and the fear. And so we're really pushing and challenging folks to face the very things that they were often running from um, because they're very hard. And uh, that goes true and, and holds true, I think, for us as faculty as well. You've mentioned in some of the schools that you've spent years doing this training and you've seen some of those success stories. Are there any that you can share with us where you can really say, we made a difference and I can see it? Yeah, so so without necessarily pointing to to any school in particular, um, because, you know, I think to be fair, you know, schools are organisms, right? And and just like humans, uh, we we have successes and then failures and learnings and all of that. And so what we are seeing, though, is I'll speak from it two ways. One is that we're seeing um, sometimes the imperceptible, um, unmeasured and sometimes unvalued shift in paradigms. So we're seeing an increase in language being used that is more restorative and less punitive, um, more trauma-informed, more interest and curiosity in understanding the invisible backpack, right, that we all bring into every school with us that impacts learning and culture. Um, To explore the private logic, we're seeing staff really increase their learning around what might be going on with the brain when students and themselves are emotionally dysregulated. That's sometimes a little bit harder to measure, right? Because we're looking at uh, learning and paradigm shifts. 
But then we also have partnered with, over the years, with the likes of Johns Hopkins University. And what we found with some of the hard data with the schools that we've been supporting is a 44% reduction in suspensions with those schools that we're working with versus um, versus schools that we haven't been working with with restorative practices. So we're seeing less punitive uh, interventions by staff towards students and figuring out ways in which we can build better community. So that metric by itself can be impressive, but especially when we think about that, there's also been a corresponding increase in staff feeling respected um, at double digits, increase in staff feeling um, valued and respected. So if we're just not suspending kids because we don't want to suspend them uh, to keep the numbers down, that's one thing. But if we're also seeing a corresponding increase in sense of community, then that's something different. Um, we're learning how to be better together in community. The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Get connected at the Pratt. Check out hotspots and Chromebooks just like you would a book. Go to prattlibrary.org and find out how. Let the Pratt help keep you logged on. I want to talk a little bit um, just personally about you. This is tough work. And I think some of the things that maybe kids in Baltimore City are going through are things that you've experienced in your life. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to this type of work? Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree with you that that there should be and there there needs to be the sense of um, relevancy, right? That those who we are serving need to be able to see inside of us an aspect of who they are. Um, the nice thing about human beings is that we're complex. So there's lots of ways in which we can find connections inside of our complex personalities, right? And experiences. And so for me, you know, my entire career after college was serving youth, we those that we often call at risk, right? Those who have been um, at times wounded by life and their promise, their potential has been impacted, right? I've worked with them since I was one. Um, I first started to do uh, social justice work right around age 15. And I was really interested in that work because I had come from a really challenging background. I was born into a, a womb of trauma. My biological father died before I was born. And I was born into a, a poor family. We were homeless by the time I was eight. And we'd remain homeless throughout most of my, my youth. Um, I was arrested for the first time when I was 10 years old. And I spent more time in juvenile detention center between 10 and age 14 than out of one. And what that did was it, at first it skewed my, my worldview. I, I, I was raging against myself and uh, a lot of internal aggression and external manifestation of such. Um, and then right around age 14, 15, I was introduced to social justice through the book of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that really turned and inspired something in me where I could understand that there was there was a thing that I could fight against out in the world, and that was injustice, and that I didn't have to fight against myself, and that the world wasn't okay. And this began to explain how bad things could happen to good people like my family. And so it really inspired inside of me this, this determination to change the community and myself along the way. And that's where I found my footing, my solid ground. And that continued on as I taught in Philadelphia right after college and then in Baltimore City. And then it's continued to now where I run a couple organizations trying to serve the people. What was that experience like teaching in Baltimore City um, specifically? Because I think it was before you 
had sort of, um, and you were probably doing those restorative practices in your classroom and only kind of look back and reflect upon it um, once you were trained in that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so my journey in the classroom was one of um, stumbling into good practices, but also causing a lot of harm along the way. So I was committed and have been committed to working with particularly urban youth, uh, black and brown children specifically, and those that, that have faced the negative gravitational pulls, right, of poverty and racism and sexism, misogyny. And um, so I've been committed, but my approach hasn't always been rooted in being trauma-informed and restorative. I was very much someone who was about command and control. And while I, I, I used um, at times, right, an inclination towards love for the children, I was also very much committed to them obeying uh, what it is that I was telling them and really worried that if they didn't learn to obey me in the classroom, then they could possibly go out into the world and face someone with a uniform who might shoot them dead because they didn't obey. So I was really concerned about really teaching young people how to live in a world that would often be hostile to them. The problem with that was that I was also being hostile to them um, inside of the classroom. And so I was coming to look in the mirror and see a hypocrite. I was using the language of liberation, but I was using the tools of oppression and command and control. And so I needed to have a reconciliation of my practices and, and my, my heart. And so I began to look for that and find that some of the practices that I was doing were aligned with that. And I needed to begin to make a paradigm shift. And that's where I stumbled across restorative practices and trauma-informed practices. And it just made sense. And it painted the pathway, I think, or, or showed the path towards where I wanted to be and who I wanted to be. And I needed to go about doing that hard work of getting there. And my students began to embrace this change, this shift in me, where I had already gotten, you know, sort of them to fear me. And um, that was running its course because I was becoming less and less interested in them fearing me and more interested in them seeing me as I see them. Yeah. Have you seen that shift in teachers that you're now training in restorative practices? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's by degrees, right? There's two steps forward, one step back or so, but we are. And, and, and admittedly, I think it's sometimes easier for me being vulnerable to disclose, right? That, that, that I haven't been on this journey uh, my entire career, that this is sort of where I am now. But I like to think of myself as, um, as a command and control in recovery, right? I, I, I still, I still fall back to that at times um, because I'm, I'm a complex human being, right? Um, but yeah, we're seeing the same kind of shifts in teachers and uh, some are moving at a quick pace and others are moving a little bit slower. But the, the important thing is that we cannot teach restorative practices in a non-restorative way. Mm -hmm. We cannot be trauma-informed in a non-trauma-informed way. So that means that it's going to require us to be patient, to be supportive, to be challenging to those adults that are also on this journey. And we use the term journey, right? This is not a destination, it's a journey. And so how do we support folks along the way? How do we connect with them along the way? I think people hear the term restorative practices and they don't quite grasp what that means. So can you sort of in a nutshell explain what the difference between a restorative practices versus something else? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, going back to that layman's definition, right? Uh, you know, how do we leverage, how do we lean into relationships in order to transform behavior in others and ourselves, right? So that's sort of, a, you know, if we, if we hold as a guiding principle there, but what does it look like in practice? So there are a set of practices that fall into the realm of proactive and responsive. So the proactive practices are those that build community, they increase social capital, they create the conditions in the milieu so that we don't harm each other, right? It is true that when we feel connected in a sense of belonging, that we're less willing to bring harm to each other, right? Yeah. I think that's true. And then there are a set of practices uh, that are designed to respond to harm when it happens, right? So when we harm each other, and we will, right? We're humans and we're in relationships and communities that harm will happen. Uh, there's an inevitability to that. So one of my close colleagues and best friends, Steve Kaur, who's a master in this work, he says that the problems that happen between human beings aren't the problem. It's when we don't have a process to work through the problems, that's the problem. And so I believe that's true. So what restorative practices offers is a way in which we can respond to harm and hold folks accountable without causing more harm. And I see yeah. that's, I think, the key there, right? How do we hold folks accountable without also causing more harm? And that distinguishes restorative practices from the punitive model, where it essentially offers three questions. The punitive model does, you know, what rule was broken? What law was broken? What crime happened? Who did it? And what do we need to do to them? Yeah. And it doesn't consider the victim. It doesn't consider those who've been harmed. It also doesn't consider the full needs that have been expressed, either by those that have caused the harm or those who have been harmed. So that's where we, we look at restorative practices for guidance. Stop paying to download ebooks and e-audiobooks. Get the best sellers and hottest titles for free with your Pratt Library card. No card? No problem. Head to prattlibrary.org and get your Pratt Library e-card today. Available to any Maryland resident. You're free to be more at the Pratt. We're taking sort of this model that you have done in schools and now in Baltimore City, we've talked about training agencies. Is there a challenge taking something like this out of schools and then going to agencies and the need for buy-in from those agencies to make real change? Yeah, that's a Megan. That's a that's a great question. Um, I, I'm sure that there are going to be along the way some unique challenges that we face in the application of this work in agencies. But I think what we're really talking about is how do we, whether it's schools or agencies, community organizations, otherwise, how do we take practices that are rooted inside of the culture of the people? right? Especially inside of indigenous and traditional black and brown communities, right? How do we take practices that were developed inside of communities that are more collectivist and apply them inside of institutions that are not, right? I think that's more of, a, of an important question. And so lessons that we've learned along the way in schools, which are institutions, is, you know, we, we push up against policies and systems that are not necessarily conducive to this work. Right. So there is a push and pull of, you know, how do we implement work and change policies and practices at the same time? So I think that for me, that that's one of the challenges that we've been facing inside of schools. We'll see the same thing inside of agencies as well. The nice thing about the um, city agencies is that there is at least a spoken 
interest in serving the public good. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't always as the public, we don't always feel that. Right. We don't always yeah. interpret it that way. Right. But when we speak to the agency heads, that's what they're saying. Like, hey, we want to do better and we want to do right by the public, whether it's transportation or corrections or what. And so that means that work like this, restorative practices, trauma-informed practices, healing practices are at least aligned with what we say we want, right? What we put in the practice is often different. That's where the push and pull is going to be. And and I'm excited and interested to see where those lines are going to be. Um, They're going to be primarily in, I think, the rank and file employees and staff looking to see if this is going to be something that leaders really believe, or is this just something that they're saying for the moment? That's going to be a critical pivot point, I think. Yeah, I think it's really important to know that this isn't a quick fix, that this is a marathon and not a sprint. So how do you motivate people to say this is going to be long transformational work and not something that's going to fix our city tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, Because, you know, we're often going for the quick fix. Right. And we have to resist the urge to implement the very first solution that we come up with. Right. Because often it's not rooted inside of the collective. It hasn't considered needs. And so um, so this work is is longer. It's arduous. It's protracted. Right. All of the things that you said. So a couple of things that we're, we're letting folks know is, one, this work is not a set of practices. Right. That's what we're often looking for. We're looking for let me let me get some tools, some tricks that I can implement tomorrow. There's something that we say in martial arts, and that is one mind, any weapon. So in other words, if we have the right mindset, we can modify the practices so that it, they work for us. But in the absence of that mindset, we're using a hammer where a wrench is necessary. Mm-hmm. And so what we're going to be doing is really focusing on mindset and teaching practices simultaneously. But something that we say is that this is not what we do. This isn't the stuff that we do, right? This isn't even who we are, meaning sort of an identity you put on or not. Being restorative, being trauma-informed is who you be, right? It's really who we be. So we're really talking about how we do all things and not just a few set of things. And the nice thing is that once we begin to implement this work, it influences all of the stuff that we do, how we interface with our clients, our customers, our students, those that we serve, the public, but also how we interface with each other. So we're seeing better workplaces that are implementing these practices among staff. So this has the potential, I think, to really change the very water in the city agencies. When there is a city like Baltimore where there's so much individualized trauma, how can that manifest itself in the city as a whole? Yeah, wow, that's that feels like a big question. Um, <laughs> so I think when we see the level of, of collective trauma that we, we do in... Uh, in places like Baltimore, and again, you know, while Baltimore is is unique in many ways, it shares exposure to trauma that we see in, in, in many other places, not just in the United States, but really across the world. We think about, you know, what's happening in many places around the world now that we share sort of collective trauma. And what I think is interesting is, you know, if we as we faced COVID-19, I, I saw a really good quote, and it said, you know, with COVID-19, we're not all in the same boat, mm-hmm. right? That we're all facing the same storm, but that some of us have a yacht, some of us have a rowboat, and some of us have nothing. Mm. Now, 
that makes really good sense on, you know, the social economic level, right? That we're talking about resources and, and some have the opportunity to, to experience the storm differently. But also if we, if we think a little bit deeper, let's also talk about coping skills, that some of us have a yacht full of coping skills, right? That we have, we have family, we have a positive and effective coping mechanisms, whether they're mindfulness or otherwise, that we can tap into when we're facing trauma, when we're facing situations that are overwhelming, right? Uh, the events, experience, and, and effects. Um, some of us have a rowboat. We've got a few of those, right? I like to think that I do. Uh, I have a few skills that uh, I use sometimes and, and I'm trying to learn more. And then some of us, some of us have, have a dearth of those. We really struggle in the absence of having those coping skills or they quickly get overwhelmed and flooded. And so in a place like Baltimore, we're seeing folks all over the map and we're seeing people doing some really good work and trying to build up um, so that we've got better skills, right? That each of us have a yacht full of those skills. We're also seeing some young people lead that work, which I think I'm very excited about. And we weave that those voices into the Healing Cities Act faculty as well, those young voices. So for me, I think, you know, looking across the landscape of Baltimore and saying, okay, where are we seeing some of the gaps? And what do we need to make normal, normalized in terms of practices and that's where Holistic Life Foundation and Brothers Ali and Atman are doing wonderful work in trying to normalize mindfulness so that this isn't something that has the same level of stigma that uh, we've seen historically in Black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. We're talking about this being long-term work, um, and it's called the Healing City Act. So tell me, way down the line, if everything goes the way we would hope that it would go, what does a healed city of Baltimore look like to you? Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, I'm a dreamer. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I love thinking way down the line. Uh, it's maybe why I love science fiction, um, because I, I love the creative imagination. Uh, I can imagine, I can dream of uh, healing spaces across the city and a healed city um, maybe not healed in the past tense, but healing, right? Because it's always developing and it's always changing. Where the work is owned, enlivened, and creatively implemented by the community itself, which means that we have centers everywhere, not physical centers, but intangible centers of people and community um, that are engaging in this work consistently, that we have zones of restoration where when young people and adults struggle and they harm each other, that the community itself works through the needs, Um, that we have common language, that we can go places and we'll talk about the social discipline window and people will know what that means, Um, that when we talk about the three E's of trauma, that people will be able to have a common language around that and that it is accessible to all folks of all levels, Um, that this is not something that is owned by professionals, but that we have made it such that... uh, that everybody has access to it. So that's a dream. It's a beautiful dream. Yeah. Dr. Malik Muhammad, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and thanks for your time today. Thank you so much, Megan. It's, It's been an honor and a pleasure. And thank you for helping to amplify this work. We appreciate you. No Netflix, no problem. The Pratt has Canopy, a free streaming service featuring top classic and indie films. Canopy Kids has TV series, movies, and more for the little ones. 
all available with your Pratt Library card. Find out more at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.